0: Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 309, Godly, Godlier and Godliest. Now, it feels as though we've been away for a while from the core business of this podcast, if there be a core business of this podcast. Is there, I wonder? Answers on a postcard, though I must admit it's a question I really should be able to answer myself. Before I kick off, though, with this episode, I have a stream of apologies to make from the previous episodes. Number one, Valparaiso is not in Argentina, of course. It is in Chile. I grovel with apology before any Chileans listening. Secondly, Cartagena is, of course, not in Venezuela. It's in Colombia. I povel with agrology again. And thirdly, Sarah tells me that Cupid's was the first settlement in Canada in 1610. Once again, I admit my fault, though I was kind of aware that Humph only did settle at St John's in the sense of putting a plaque up. But every English person knows the way to heaven is paved with apologies, so sorry and all. Now, I remember when I did real work, a publisher returning after maternity leave and saying that her boss had advised her to read herself back in. I've always thought that a nice concept. So I'm going to start this episode with the podcasting equivalent of reading ourselves back in before we get into the cut and the thrust, the blood and misery of religious conflict. And of course, you all know what's around the corner, do you not? Yes, the one bit of Tudor history I remember from my school days, the Slovak Armada. Or is it Spanish? Week joke of the year award we stand on the threshold of the 1580s, which is a super turbulent decade. Although, to be honest, if we were an ordinary person, the 90s will be even worse, given that plague and famine would have been of far more interest to you than the goings on in Parliament and courts and all that kind of stuff. But whatevs. Just to give you an overview then, the 80s is when religious conflict really gets going again. And while your thoughts will immediately turn, I suspect, to Catholic persecution, priest holes and all that sort of thing, well, there's plenty of conflict in the Elizabethan church too, I'll have you know. One of the reasons this conflict gets going, good and proper, is the increasing feeling of threat. I've tried to keep this in mind with things like the massacre of St Bartholomew's Day, Regnans and Excelsis, the Ridolfi plot and all that. But in the words of Ballou... There's more baggy. There's much more. With open war with Spain and the critical question of whether or not El Drac did or did not play bowls. There's the war of religions in France. The wave of priests coming from the continent to save Catholicism in England and indeed save the souls of the English. And then there's the state of the Protestant rebellion in the Low Countries and the impact of a bona fide military genius in the Duke of Parma. So These are the sorts of things we'll be talking about before we get to the end of Elizabeth's reign in the 90s of Nightmares, where we'll talk more about social stuff, I deem. Plague and famine, poor laws, literacy, witchcraft, all that sort of thing, before welcoming the Stuarts into our hearts. How does that sound, gentle listeners? Like a plan? Or as though we are crawling along the abrasive vegetable skin of history towards the rough end of the pineapple of life? Anyway, that's what you're getting. So, let us return to Elizabeth's court for a while. In her Privy Council, there is both continuity and change. Burley, Sussex, Leicester, Knowles, Mildmay served throughout the decade. But equally, some famous names like Pembroke, Bacon, Arundel either died or disappeared from the court due to some peccadillo. New faces joined in the late 70s like Christopher Hatton and Francis Walsingham. In brief, the Privy Council became slightly smaller, slightly less aristocratic, but also much more Protestant. And as we discussed the progress of the Elizabethan Church and the struggle between conformism and Puritanism, it is significant that in the 80s the Puritans were secure in the knowledge that they had supporters at the top table, Leicester, Walsingham, Knowles. On a lighter and a more gossipy note, I should mention the 17th Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere. My link being that he was Lord Great Chamberlain all the way through to 1604, but politically a bit part player, though well known at court and well known to the Queen. My intentions for introducing Edward de Vere are not honourable, I have to say. I have two reasons. One, that Edward de Vere is one of those quite extraordinary Elizabethan aristocrats who, just like the Elizabethan adventurers we've heard about in Ireland and on the oceans, live thoroughly outrageous and generally disreputable lives. And secondly, because a listener mentioned an anecdote which I now feel constrained to tell you. The outrageous life first. Edward de Vere was very popular with the Queen for a while, a bit of a looker I think, and despite his various peccadilloes, never quite lost it. Though when he hopped out of the country without permission, he did feel the sharp edge of her tongue. He was a protégé of Burley in his young days, who rather looked out for him. So, in July 1567, while practising the art of fencing with a Westminster tailor in the garden of Cecil House, he killed an unarmed and possibly inebriated undercook called Thomas Brinknell. Devere just called his posh pals and the coroner's jury was spiked by Cecil and gave out the finding that Brinknell had committed suicide by running upon a point of a fence sword of said earl. I'm just doing a few episodes on the glories of common law for members at the moment and if you are a member you might want to remember this tale if I get too carried away with patriotic fervour about the common law and the liberty of the individual. Money and status mattered in Elizabethan England. De Vere then married Cecil's daughter Anne as it happens and the marriage was an absolute disaster. De Vere spent all the dowry in short order as well as digging deep into his own inheritance. Even the Queen had a go at him for his lack of thrift. He was estranged from Anne for many years and went on a long European tour from 1575. De Vere very probably went in to indulge himself and spend his money cutting a dash, and probably also to flirt with Catholicism. But a later seventeenth century writer called Aubrey, who wrote a thoroughly gossipy little book on sixteenth and seventeenth century notable figures called Brief Lives, has an alternative explanation of why De Vere left court. This Earl of Oxford, making his low obeisance to Queen Elizabeth happened to let a fart, at which he was so abashed and ashamed that he went to travel seven years. On his return, the Queen welcomed him home and said, By Lord, I had forgot the fart. De Vere appears to have been bisexual, appearing back home in the company of a choir boy which didn't win him many favours in Elizabethan days. When he returned, he had a falling out with Philip Sidney and retired from court where he was rumoured to have plotted Sidney's murder, no less. He wrote poetry, which I'm told is very good, and of course is rumoured in some circles to have written some of Shakespeare's plays. He died in 1604. It is rightly said, can't remember by whom, that if you want to have fun, being an aristocrat really helps and being middle class does not. I hope you also managed to spot which bit of the story I was reminded of by a listener, Jeff, I think, which I think also gives you a good indication of the quality of the History of England listening community. Maybe there's some serious content in there, though, in that it is a pretty classic example of Elizabeth's style of bant. Elizabeth was, of course, faced by a phalanx of men at court and in the Privy Council who rather assumed they could do a better job than a woman and Elizabeth maintained to the end of her days her strategy of keeping her councillors informed and involved, but off balance. The longevity and length of service of her councillors was in stark contrast to the vicious fickleness of her father. Very few councillors, indeed, faced the Elizabethan chop. But it gave her a further problem that while the Privy Council often split into factions on key issues, the relationship between them was often very strong – Burley clearly ruled the roost, but took trouble to establish friendly relationships with the likes of Christopher Hatton when he joined in particular, and the correspondence between Burley and Walsingham was voluminous. So Elizabeth had to make sure this phalanx of men did not take over. She jealously protected her royal prerogative as a result. So when Burley stepped over a line in 1575, he wrote to Sussex, My doings have been interpreted as diminutions of Her Majesty's prerogative, which your lordship knoweth is so grateful to princes to maintain, as in no thing more may a prince's displeasure be displayed. This is one good reason why Elizabeth flew into rages and tantrums and was unpredictable and prevaricated. She was dealing with a bunch of power-hungry blokes and needed to keep them uncomfortable.' She needed to retain her freedom of action. What she really hated was when everybody on her privy council agreed with each other on a course of action, because that left her without any options. In the disagreement of her councillors lay her ability to rule. Meanwhile, in Elizabeth's privy chamber, there was similar longevity. Although Cat had died in 1565, her place as chief gentlewoman was taken by Blanche Parry, a companion of the Queen's youth. Elizabeth Fitzgerald was also a long-standing companion until her death in 1590, Catherine Hastings and Lady Anne Dudley too. People like Blanche and Elizabeth gave the Queen often genuine affection, but her ladies of the chamber also hooked her into the network at court and Elizabeth listened carefully to what they said about the goings-on and rumours at court. Although Elizabeth had tried to banish political influence from her privy chamber, this was beyond her. Not only did she need the information her gentlewomen provided, but courtiers did their very best to hook into these networks. Walter Raleigh described them as witches because they were capable of doing great harm, but no good a definition my wife would argue with since she's declared herself a white witch and certainly her ability to find stuff is pure wizardry. Another courtier remarked, We worshipped no saints, but we prayed to ladies in the Queen's time. Okay, then, that's the reading in. Now let us turn to religion. And although the most famous and discussed topic, as I say, is generally the position of Catholics, To the vast majority of English people, the state of Protestant religion was far more important to their daily lives. There are a couple of major themes, really, although I'm sure a proper historian would throw their slippers at me and mutter dolt for being so reductionist. How far did the Elizabethan Church embed itself into the national psyche and life? I mean, at the end of Elizabeth's reign, will I be repeating again that Catholicism remained firmly embedded in many people's hearts? Or not? And then also, how had the search for uniformity gone by the end of the reign? As I believe I have mentioned, religious uniformity was not just an English desire, it was a Christian one, and all over Europe nations sought to rescue this great treasure from the fire lit by Martin Luther in 1517. When we last spoke of the Elizabethan settlement, the confident expectation of many reformers was that this was the start of a process. Many were quite sure that the Book of Common Prayer would need to be substantially changed. As one commentator remarked, This was but the first show of the light. We must grow to further perfection. Many also took issue with the management of the church, thinking particularly of the position of bishops. Many felt that bishops were simply not scriptural and therefore should be banished to the outer darkness. They favoured instead Presbyterianism, the management of church congregations at a local level while also maintaining a national church through some kind of national assembly. But bishops and all their fancy clothing, that was basically Catholicism as far as they could see, unneeded ceremony. The term Puritan appears from the 1560s as a Catholic sneer. The term spread like wildfire, and as so often, an insult led to the adoption of a long-standing label. But few Puritans would have described themselves thus. They called themselves the godly. The one article I have read makes the point that there are degrees of godliness. The godly, the godlier, and the godliest, if you like. The godliest could be unpopular in parishes, and frankly, they often liked it that way. They liked to stand apart from the carnal multitude, and courted their own unpopularity as a sign of their own election to the chosen. The godly were deeply unconvinced that the church structure of bishops, archdeacons and church courts could provide the kind of discipline that continental Calvinist movements demanded, and which were becoming such a feature of the Scottish Kirk, with deep and effective control of both religious and social behaviour. The question for the godly, of whatever level, was whether to stay and work within the Elizabethan church or leave it and establish their own conventicles. The godly themselves were split then. George Gifford, a Puritan preacher from Essex, for example, while bitterly criticising the papist pretensions of the established church, nonetheless fought hard against the separatist impulse, describing it as mad fury to argue that English churches were anything other than reputed godly churches. Early in Elizabeth's reign, the response from the church hierarchy to the demands of Puritans was uncertain, and differences existed between the Queen and some of her bishops, and between the Queen and her Parliament. Through both of these channels, the godly tried to effect change. Before any kind of firm uniformity could be established the response of the Queen and her hierarchy needed to be worked through. A good example was Edmund Grindle promoted to become Archbishop of Canterbury in 1575. Grindle had himself been described by the godly at one stage by a preacher called Paterson as an antichrist in 1566. It must be said that the accusation of Antichrist, which sounds really nasty now, must surely have become devalued by the end of Elizabeth's reign. I mean, it was scattered around like confetti, as far as I can see. I imagine just leaving the toilet seat up one night might land you with the accusation of Antichrist of the smallest room. But despite his evidence of a moderate position, Grindle still fell foul of the Queen. Grendel was a fan of the preaching of sermons which was core to most of Protestant practice and Elizabeth was not again the practice herself but for her it must be controlled, it must be licensed. So when the practice of prophesying grew within England she was alarmed. Prophesying was the practice of well-known preachers coming to town, everyone sitting around and taking notes, and then a wide variety of folks all going off themselves and trying it out. Elizabeth ordered Grindel to rein all this in and enforce the licensing of preachers. Grendel thought about it, wrote a six thousand word essay explaining why to do this was against his conscience, so Elizabeth said, hmm sorry to hear that," and suspended him from his office, and would ideally have completely deprived him of his office, a very radical step for an Archbishop of Canterbury from which Burley talked her down. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zeppound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com weightloss weight loss. When Grindle died, his replacement as Archbishop John Whitgift was much more Elizabeth's cup of tea. was strongly conformist and set his face against the demands of the godly to make theological and liturgical changes. The godly focused on the bishops, setting their abolition as a precondition for the revival of personal zeal in the parishes. Whitgift faced challenges also to his authority from privy councillors, notably from the puritanical Leicester, but in 1586 Elizabeth promoted Whitgift to the Privy Council, the only ecclesiastical member of her council throughout her reign, and Whitgift always retained her confidence. Through this partnership, the drive to embed the Elizabethan settlement in the hearts and daily lives of the English grew apace. The other aspect of resistance to the Puritan desire for permanent revolution came from Elizabeth in Parliament, she consistently made the point that she was supreme governor of the church and that the business of church reform, should any be needed, lay with her and the convocation of the church, not with Parliament. Despite many attempts to debate religion in Parliament, Elizabeth consistently held that line. After criticising Parliament for conducting a debate on religion in 1585, Elizabeth made her views quite clear. Her resolute pleasure that she will receive no motion of alteration or change of any law whereby the religion or Church of England stands established at this day. For as she found it at her first coming in and so hath maintained it these 27 years, she meant in like state by God's grace to continue it and leave it behind her. As far as Elizabeth was concerned, her church was perfect and the job was done, sorted, move along, nothing to see here. The last attempt, despite the Queen's unequivocal rage at parliamentary interference in her settlement, came in 1586, when two MPs, Cope and Wentworth, brought reforms to Parliament, both in practice and the Book of Common Prayer. Both found themselves in the Tower. But in the ensuing debate, various governmental heavyweights were rolled out to condemn the bill as well, among them being Christopher Hatton. Hatton's speech summarised why the establishment was so keen to bring the Puritans into line and stop making changes to the Elizabethan settlement. People, said Hatton, were becoming used to the perfect form of service established by the settlement. By making further changes, you shall drive them by thousands, either to become atheists or papists. But Hatton's greater charge... Was to equate Presbyterianism and godly Puritans with subversion of the state. With this, the last failure of the Puritans to use Parliament to implement their agenda, Elizabeth demonstrated her essential success at keeping church and state separate once the original settlement had been made. Still, Puritan reformers tried again through extra parliamentary means. One of these, was the publications attributed to the fictional Martin Marprolate. The publications tapped into well-established reformist traditions, poking fun at bishops and the pomposity of the establishment, mocking their grandeur and expense. Their satire and humour won them some support, but their timing sucked with superior levels of suckiness because it came at the same time as the Armada, and so they rather reinforced Whitgiff and Hatton's point to equate Presbyterianism than Puritanism as seditious and anti-state. By the 1590s, Puritanism had been discredited and stripped of its leadership. There was little need for extensive persecution, though three men, Penry, Barrow and Greenwood, who had been involved in the martin Marprelate affair, were tried and executed for attending separatist congregations. By the 1590s, Puritanism had gone underground. How far, then, had the Elizabethan Church been accepted in the parishes? John Guy remarks that the Elizabethan Reformation was different in many ways to the Reformation of Edward VI and Henry VIII, in that once the religious settlement had been passed through Parliament, there was far less top-down reform from government, and in fact, as we have heard, Elizabeth stifled it and far more evangelising came from the bottom up. As far as Elizabeth was concerned, the core responsibility of her subjects was conformity to go to church to follow the Book of Common Prayer. As far as what was going on in their souls or in private was concerned, well, that was a matter for them as long as they turned up to church and did the necessary. As far as the church evangelical movement itself was concerned, preaching was central and formed the basis of their attempts to bring congregations into the path of righteousness. They identified four stages. The apostolic stage, where preachers travelled the countryside. The formative stage, where people came to see the preachers at market days and so on. The intermediate stage, when preachers and the ministry were fully established in a locality. And the fully developed stage, when preachers were common in an area. Needless to say, different regions moved through this process at different speeds. But much of this evangelical effort owed its success to a minority of enthusiasts, sometimes operating unlicensed by the church itself. The story in Wales, by the way, has similarities and differences. The key difference, of course, was language, and initially, in the 1540s, it had been established that religion was to be conducted in English, and if that had remained the case... The history of religion in Wales and possibly the history of the United Kingdom would have been very different. But as would happen in Ireland, evangelicals, who were worryingly rare initially, it must be said, quickly realised that conversion to Protestantism was quite impossible unless conducted in Welsh. And so the policy changed, and changed much more effectively than again would happen in Ireland. From 1567, the Book of Common Prayer and New Testament had been created in Welsh, and from 1588, the full Bible became available from a translation made by William Morgan. Morgan came from a family near Carnarvon and progressed through the Anglican Church from parish priest to bishop of Rhin to bishop of St Asaph. It's probably there that he completed the work that made him, in the words of one historian, the single most important figure in the history of the Reformation in Wales. His Bible described by another historian as a great literary and linguistic triumph. This was by no means the end of the affair. The Reformation in Wales went through similar stresses and stages as in England. The church was poor and suffered from a lack of trained people to embed Protestantism. The Welsh Bible was expensive until the 17th century and of course literacy rates were low. A network remained of those dedicated to the Catholic faith and meanwhile others wanted to go further than the Elizabethan Church had taken them and the long history of Nonconformism in Wales starts here. At parish level there is some debate about the engagement of the mash of individuals outside of the issues we talked about with Puritans and will talk about with Catholics there's tradition which claims that without all the ceremony and mystery the Anglican service was a dull affair and a litany of complaints about bad behaviour and talking in church rolled out in defence of the argument. Others point out that clerical complaints about bad behaviour predates the Reformation by a long time and anyway the recording of such incidents may simply point equally to the unusualness and unacceptability of such behaviour hence its noteworthiness Others point to the greater interaction through the theatre of response required in the Book of Common Prayer and to the growth of the singing of psalms by congregations. But wherever you stand on this, it seems pretty evident that by the time Elizabeth lay in her grave, the Protestant Church of England was embedded into the daily life of the vast majority of England's population. And just the passage of time alone, if nothing else, meant that memories of the old religion had faded away except where specifically kept alive by recusant families. Elizabethan clergy were central to daily life in the parish, officiating at christenings, churching of mothers, catechising of children, celebration of the Eucharist, weddings, service of the dead, etc. etc. It's probable that the relationship between clergy and laity changed somewhat. Protestantism stripped away much of the mystery from the clergy, as did clerical marriage. So the incidence of adultery or complaints of sexual misdemeanours among the clergy, always a problem pre-Reformation, became less of a problem with clerical marriage. And parish priests, often poorer than they were previously, probably were more embedded in everyday life in things like farming their glebe land, making their literacy services available to their parishioners. Furthermore, the tradition of preaching could lead to disputes between vicars and lecturers and between congregations and their priests. The organization of the parish ran through society, as I believe we covered in a previous episode on the parish, number 282, I think. So, just to say that the network of church wardens and clerks provided another bridge between parishes and the church hierarchy. I should at this point then mention one further character of the Elizabethan Church, which I really suspect I should have heard of much more than I have. Richard Hooker was born in 1554 in Exeter to a not very well-off family, although they had connections. He went to Exeter Grammar School and there his career might well have ended had it not been for the sponsorship of Bishop John Jewell, who helped Hooker make it to Oxford University. Now, why, I hear you ask, do I mention Richard Hooker? Well, Hooker produced the works of theology called Of the Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. It was not a brief introduction to the subject, I have to tell you. Eight books were published, several posthumously, and therefore open to some debate about their authorship. Hooker's work formed the intellectual and theoretical background to the Elizabethan settlement, and he became the intellectual father of what would later become known as Anglicanism. He was described by two historians as par excellence, the apologist of the Elizabethan settlement of 1559, and perhaps the most accomplished advocate that Anglicanism has ever had. In assessing his work, he seems to have found both favour and disapprobation from pretty much everyone though by Victorian days he had become enthroned as unchallengeable. Obviously, nobody remained unchallengeable in the 20th century, but nonetheless he remains at the heart of the doctrine of Anglicanism. In the 17th century, his works drew fire from both sides, Puritan and Catholic, and also support from both sides. And probably the reason for that is that, like the church he defended itself, he steered a path between the extremes, He argued for a positive spiritual value in ceremonies and rituals and for an unbroken line of succession from the medieval church to the latter-day Church of England, which made him less unacceptable to Catholics and quite popular later with Laudians. He accused Puritans of attempting the impossible, of protesting loyalty to the Queen, while on the other hand undermining the structural arrangements of her church, particularly the existence of bishops. And yet, he also argued that scriptural authority lay at the heart of the principle underpinning the Elizabethan Church in his view. Bible, Church and Reason for him provided the three underpinning principles of the Church of England. His writings attracted the attention of thinkers such as John Locke, who referred to him several times in his writing, particularly on Hooker's views on consent as the basis of political authority and law as supreme in its exercise. Hooker's legacy is maybe a little uncertain, but a bit like Magna Carta, maybe a strength is the myriad ways in which he could be interpreted. But he provided strength to the intellectual justification of the Church of England, and in his view that placing an undue emphasis on antagonism with Roman Catholicism was a distraction from the proper tasks of Christian life lay seeds of reconciliation. Though that takes a while, it must be said. I confess myself to be utterly inexpert on such a complex man, so if you happen to feel strongly, do get in touch to enlighten me. Almost at the end then, the super summary is that by Elizabeth's death, I assume that's not a plot spoiler for you all, Whitgiff and the Elizabethan Church seems to have fought off its detractors. We'll discuss Catholicism for the next couple of episodes, but certainly the idea of a significant number of Puritans leaving the church was for the moment dead and the leadership of the Puritans was divided and cowed. The Elizabethan Church had established itself in the daily life and rhythm of the parishes, and education of its clergy was gathering apace, and would be a major achievement of the Church. However, the search for uniformity, which looked for a while to have been achieved, was really anything but. There is a theory that the civil wars of the 17th century are in fact England and Wales' wars of religion, that Elizabeth simply suppressed the differences rather than resolving them. Well, the current debate seems to have rejected such a single-minded causation of the civil wars, but there is no doubt that once the civil wars had started, a staggering plethora of different Protestant ideas and sects emerged into the light of day. And once that lid was off, there would be no squeezing England and Wales back into the bottle of conformity oatly dotly, in the words of the immortal rabbit that's all folks next week we'll turn our attention to the plight of those other dissenters the catholics and see how the elizabethan settlement was working for them